Today's speaker, Brian Horrigan, joins us from the Minnesota History Center and is the exhibit developer of World War I America. He was educated at the University of Chicago and the University of California, Berkeley. And in the 1980s, he was a fellow at the National Museum of American History and then went on to work at the US Information Agency. In 1990, he and his family moved to Minnesota where he became curator for the Minnesota Historical Society, which was at the time building the Minnesota History Center, a museum, and he's been there ever since. Brian has curated many exhibitions over the years, but most recently he developed a nationally touring exhibition entitled 1968, which serves as an overview of that watershed year in American history, and as I said, is the curator of the wonderful exhibit that you'll see upstairs. Brian is planning on, I guess we get to congratulate him, he's planning on retiring this year. <laughs> <laughs> and will finish his book on Charles Lindbergh and American cultural history. So please give, please give a warm Virginia welcome to Brian Horrigan, who will speak to us about the development of this incredible exhibition, World War I America. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, in, yeah, thank you, Andy. I really appreciate the hospitality, and I appreciate being invited to spend some time in Virginia. Um, I just, just checked the weather in Minnesota, and it's uh, going to be 70 degrees colder <laughs> tonight than it is right now here. I'm not going back. Okay. Where did you get this weather? <laughs> this is like August in Minnesota. Um, no, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to be here today. And, meet so much of the, so many of the staff, and to see your spectacular exhibition. I, th I was telling Brian, your designer, that is, um, I, I was bowled over. I, the, your Commonwealth and World War I exhibition is what I've always thought every museum should do when we send them an exhibit like this one. We want to encourage other institutions to do um, something like you've done, and it's really excellent. So don't miss it. Um, see our exhibit, but also see your Virginia exhibit. Um, so just a little bit. I won't take long. Uh, then we can go back up and see the exhibit. Um, just a little bit of overview on the uh, development of the exhibit and uh, on some of the themes that come out of it. Um, let's see. Um, although it was fought thousands of miles away, the war World War I transformed the United States from a relatively provincial power on the world stage to a full-fledged uh, global military-industrial leader held together by a newly powerful federal government and charged with confident patriotism. This America dominates popular memory. The saturated hues of patriotic posters, the jubilant crowds at Liberty Loan rallies, the serried ranks of manly doughboys, and hearty choruses of over there. But there were darker sides of the American experience during this time. Entire swaths of US cities engulfed in racial conflagrations. Actually, more race riots and more violent race riots in one year, in 1919, than in any single year in the 1960s. 
The workers striking by the millions, women demonstrating on the streets, demanding the right to vote, and being arrested for that protesting and uh, jailed in uh, Occoquan, Virginia. Uh, immigrants harassed and deported. Dis dissenters and hyphenated Americans pursued, surveilled, jailed, or lynched. And violent disagreements about the nature of civil liberties. Um, just a little bullet points from um, about the, the primary goals of World War I in America is to help audiences gain an understanding of the war as a transformational event in American history. That's the key word here, transformational. But that the war was, our thesis upstairs in the exhibit is that the war was always in dialogue, uh, sometimes violently with the with, with the many issues of the day, including woman including but not limited to woman suffrage, the great migration, prohibition, labor struggles, et cetera. The war shaped the nation in profound and lasting ways. And that many of the issues that are brought up in 1917 to 1919 uh, are still vital to the American conversation, immigration and exclusion rights and responsibilities of citizens, race and racial violence, the American war and the global stage. Where do we belong in the world? The treatment of veterans, government surveillance of private citizens, the threat of global pandemics, all of these things have contemporary echoes and they are the strongest and most salient facts about the period that we'll be talking about today. This project began its life more than uh, three years ago as an NEH proposal to the National Endowment for Humanities. God save the National Endowment for Humanities, please. They, uh, they're responsible for bringing this exhibit here, uh, really. They made, made it possible. We started the process of developing the planning grant proposal when it was called the Over Here Project. Nobody liked that name except for me. Um, so I lost. Uh, NEH, when, they, when you do an exhibit, proposal for them, they really want you to concentrate, think big thoughts, ask big questions. What does all this mean? Why does it matter? What's the so what? What are the larger human themes that connect the past and the present? And we do this not just by sitting around and talking to each other and doing research, but um, talking to an extraordinary group of citizens and advisors. For this planning grant and even more for our later implementation grant, they helped us focus sharpen and broaden our approach. We also read a lot, of course. Most of us, it's safe to say, including me, did not know a lot about World War I before we started this project. Um, I went to my bookshelves at home and pulled off old books that I found my original copy of David Kennedy's famous book, Over Here. Somebody was asking me today, the one book you might want to read on American, American World War I, that's it. It's still valid. Uh, it's an older book, it's 1970s, but really good. Um, and copies of Paul Fussell's magnificent book, uh, The Great War in Modern Memory. It's about Britain, but if you haven't read it, I recommend it very highly. And uh, Alice Hawley's Search for a Modern Order. Um, I took up reading some of the big books on the European War, Adam Hochschild's To End All Wars, um, Niall Ferguson's The Pity of War, Christopher Clark's uh, very hefty tome, The Sleepwalkers. It's all about Europe. Um, and I read novels and made some terrific discoveries, by the way. Um, you want to make a note of this, if you like reading novels and you like World War I, I mean, and you want to know more about World War I, Three Day Road is about 
a, a pair of Ojibwe boys from Canada go, go to, um, who go to Europe during the war. Uh, a long, long way, Sebastian Barry. If, if anybody knows Sebastian Barry, you'll know that it's a, he's a terrific Irish writer. It's about an Irish young man in the war. Sebastian Falk's Birdsong made into a great movie, All Quiet on the Western Front, John Dos Passos, et cetera. Um, as well as some I, more books by American historians, several of whom, all of these people, became advisors to our project. Chris Capazola's Uncle Sam Wants You, uh, Jennifer Keene's The Doughboys Do Do and the Great War, The Great War and the Remaking of America, and Mike Nyberg's most recent book, The Path to War. Um, we looked at other museum models, World War I museums in the United States, England and France, all of them focusing on the war as a cataclysmic global political and military event. This is the National World War I Museum in Kansas City, uh, built underneath the 1920s World War I Memorial, but this, the museum is more recent, early 2000s, and is highly recommended. Uh, I've been there many times, and I, I just can't get enough of it. It's a terrific museum. It covers the entire war, not just America. Um, and the Imperial War Museum in London on the right, and uh, just a shot from the Musée de la Première Guerre Mondiale in uh, Meaux in France, the French National World War I Museum. Both of them magnificent. but. Uh, not exactly what we wanted. We were not doing a military history exhibit, for one thing. We looked at other museum models, as I said, and I went to then I went to three U.S. exhibits about the war in 2014. Two of them were called Over Here, and one of them was called Over There. Um, and maybe that dissuaded me from <laughs> calling our exhibit Over Here. Um, and I went to a spectacular exhibit, the one down here in the center, uh, in Miami on World War I and, and visual culture. All of these examples here and abroad were deeply inspiring, but none of, them, none of them was exactly what we wanted to do. What we wanted to do was to look more broadly at America and Americans during this period, to try to understand everything, and that's in bold in my, uh, in my notes here, everything that was set in motion in this country by the war. And I have to confess that I probably held on to that idea, that hope that we could do everything longer than was reasonable. That, <laughs> um, and eventually more rational heads prevailed and said, Brian, you're crazy. We can't do everything. Um, so we plunged into the development of these themes. I've saved some original sketches of our, our floor plan. It's kind of goofy and fun. Um, we tried to carve out pieces of real estate in this 5,000 square foot exhibit with our brave designers always willing to respond to some of our more extreme everything demands is one of our early floor plans. And <clears throat> I call your attention to the upper left corner, which had somehow become the women's corner of the exhibit. And, and more than one of our advisors said, you know, that doesn't sound like a very good idea. Um, and then so someone goes up there and writes during the meeting, uh, may need to move out of corner. <laughs> you bet, we have to. So I mean, the point being that you will see in the exhibit that women appear throughout the exhibit, not just in the corner. Uh, and African-Americans appear throughout the exhibit. They are part of the American landscape. They are part of the American culture. They are not segmented and segregated off 
in, in American life, and so they shouldn't be in an exhibit about them. So um, all of the other themes that we had outlined in our NEH proposal were kind of jostling for space, woman suffrage, prohibition, the home front, Americans on the battlefield, popular culture, dissent, and the suppression of dissent, and um, let's see. Um, yeah, fortunately, we were able to work it out, all of, all of the details, by the next time we got together. <laughs> this, ladies and gentlemen, is what creativity looks like. Um, it's a mess. So this, went, this was the period when things came and went, mostly went, from the exit from the floor plan. At one point or another, we had a, a full, I told some people this today, walking through the exhibit, we had a full-size horse uh, being loaded onto a ship in Newport News, probably. We had not one but three newsstands. We had a recreation of a small town train depot. We had a walk-through trench on the Western Front. Um, we had a Model T blown up by an anarchist's bomb. Uh, we had a sing-along player piano and a full-sized elephant. Uh, Okay, maybe a baby elephant in a circus parade. Uh, all of those things were eliminated, and they'll be coming to an exhibit space near you soon. I think we, we, we'd love to do another 5,000 square foot exhibit over on the other side, putting all these things that we had to cut out. Um, this is the final floor plan. Um, what we wanted to do was to capture in an exhibit for a broad general public some of the complexity that one finds so readily in literature or in scholarly history. Where were the myriad stories? Where was the intensity of emotion? Where indeed was what our advisor, Chris Capazzola, called the passion? The ways that the war captivated, terrified, and motivated, and divided Americans? Where were the sharp divisions between people who demanded, as this, in this preparedness parade, um, on the streets of New York says, absolute and unqualified loyalty to our country. Um, and where were the divisions between those people demanding loyalty and the people who were demanded their right to dissent, to speak their minds? We wanted to look at the bravery and valor of a, and commitment of a huge range of individuals who threw themselves into what President Wilson and his war message to Congress framed as the most terrible and disastrous of all wars. By the way, uh, it, this war was called, the United States in 1914, 15, 16, called it the European War. Then we got into the war in 1917, and it became uh, the Great War. In fact, it, as early as 1914, 15, people were calling it the First World War. And I don't think it was because they knew there was another world war coming. They thought, this is the first time we've ever had a world war. So the first world war was actually what some people began to call it. Um, eventually called the Great War, mostly in Europe. And then, of course, after the 1940s, it was called World War I. Um, one theme that seemed to pervade so much of this era was immensity. And to, in both rhetoric and reality, Americans experienced the un... And, and interpreted the Great War as an event on an unfathomable scale. You saw those words all the time, words like unfathomable, uh, greatest, most terrible, et cetera, et cetera. 
over and over again, Americans actually participating in the conflict wrote that, quote, words failed them when they sought ways of conveying the scale of the killing, the world-ending destruction of the landscape, the indescribable sounds of artillery, the massive shifts of populations. We wanted the exhibit to help visitors understand how a sudden and all-pervasive experience of an overwhelming immensity shaped Americans' consciousness of what it means to be modern and profoundly and permanently shaped American character. Historians like myself are drawn to images like this one. This is Woodrow Wilson's profile made with soldiers posed and, uh, on a field taken by a, photograph, a photographer eight stories high on a specially made tower to just take a picture of what does it say? 21,000 officers of, and men in uh, Chillicothe, Ohio. It's just astounding, these, um, these kinds of, of we, we just can't imagine doing this today. Um, so just we're drawn to images like this for obvious reasons, other than just flamboyance and scale. It's because of the very fact of gathering all of these people into one frame, one image, allows us to generalize about the historical period, to talk about the nation does this, or the country believed in that, et cetera. And I think there's a lot of validity to, in those assumptions about World War I, about the World War I period, a period infatuated, it seems to me, with sheer numbers, with a, with a life lived in public life, uh, life in, op in the open, in great numbers. These massed portraits of thousands of doughboys, Parades and demonstrations involving millions of people. Movies with casts of thousands. You begin to see that phrase for the first time. And in 1918 to 1919, Americans on both the home front and the battlefront would experience the global catastrophe of the influenza epidemic, which killed 675,000 people in the United States in a single 18-month period, the equivalent of about 2.8 million people today. Imagine. Three million Americans die of the same disease in an 18-month period today. Unimaginable. Um, and so you get pictures like this, selling liberty bonds. Look at the sort of the, the, the image, this sort of performance of immensity, this sort of the, 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 the doughboys stretching out into the horizon. You can't even count the numbers of millions of them. Two million reasons why you should buy liberty bonds. <laughs> We wanted to look at the intensity of the home front American engagement with this war so vividly reflected in the Liberty Loan campaigns and in the brilliant, unprecedented propaganda efforts of the Committee on Public Information. So this is from the Chicago Tribune. Um, but the, here's, the, the French soldiers are, are going to Laon, L-A-O-N, it's a city in France. The Americans are holding up cash and, and they're giving a loan, L-O-A-N. Three billion mark reached by the nation. We're so proud of this, of this hugeness of this, constantly repeating this, that we are, that, that this is smashing all records. Here's Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks on Wall Street, 1918. Look at the crowd. Just look at that crowd. Unbelievable. Cannot even imagine a crowd that size gathering today in New York. Um, or on the home front, um, 
the Americans created, as I said, staggering performances of immensity. 10 million men registering for the draft on a single day uh, when men are reduced to a number, as they would say, the first time that phrase was used, as in the unprecedented draft lottery of July 20th, 1917. So um, this is the second draft bowl. We have the original draft, I'll show it to you, right there in the exhibition. This is the original, I can point it, don't I? Um, that's in the exhibition, the original bowl that was used on July 20th, 1917. Um, to me, and this is my favorite artifact in the exhibit. This is uh, the importance of this bowl as a national icon cannot be overstated. This moment, the draft lottery drawing on July 20th, 1917, was followed by, all day long by millions of people. New, newspapers put out special editions on which, um, with more and more numbers, uh, people's number, draft lottery number being drawn out of the bowl. Um, competing with each other for which paper had the most up-to-the-minute numbers. People gathered in bars and theaters where no news of the numbers was telephoned in and put up on chalkboards. Wall Street tickers gave more prominence and space to the string of numbers that flowed out of Washington that day than to financial news or market quotations. Um, so yeah, here's the draft bowl in the uh, exhibition and the picture behind it uh, the same bowl, the actual bowl is in the front, and then the picture behind it is of Secretary of, the, of, of War drawing out the first number. And then all these, this is all, the, this is the reduced to a number. So you are um, the number, whatever, 526 or 625, yet um, your 625th number drawn was 9227 or something like that. I mean, so the, 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 just this, I wish I had this chalkboard. I wish it still existed. Uh, we could have put that in the exhibit because I just think this is fascinating. Just the, uh, a, a, a board full of numbers that contained the fate of men in the nation. Um, in 1918, the terms of citizenship increasingly required um, a clearly authorized identity, most notably in the provisions of the Selective Service Act of 1917 that required all male citizens between 18 and 45 to register for the draft, and to carry on their persons at all times their draft registration cards. Um, here's Duke Ellington's draft registration card. Um, so he's born in 1899. He is a, um, he's a messenger for the federal government. That's what he does. He's a young man. Um, he's about, what is he? That would make him about 18. Uh, no, he's 19, he says. Um, um, so they would carry these cards on their persons at all times. The first, this is very important, the first mass state-issued identity documents in U.S. history. Um, this national, first national uh, um, identification cards, this, this sense of individuation, numbering and identifying individuals is remarkable. It's really the first time in history. No social security numbers, of course, at the time. We didn't have Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal yet. Uh, no driver's licenses, very few phone numbers, and very few of them particular to a single household, much less a person. Even street addresses were erratic, and they vanished almost completely in rural areas. Birth certificates had a very erratic recording of birth. So now we're getting to, we're documenting, we're pinpointing, we are capturing in numbers 
American people. I think the draft had, a, um, uh, had an incalculable effect on popular perceptions of the enormity of the moment that we were living in. Suddenly, very suddenly, millions, literally millions of men were called to public service at the same time. Every man in the US, whether they were a citizen or not, including Charlie Chaplin, a British citizen, uh, were required to register for the draft on a single day. Um, so um, these <laughs> overcrowded this, ships, this is actually a, a guys coming home in 1919. But look at this, let's just look at the crowds of the, on the, that ship, that troop ship. This is on the USS Leviathan in New York Harbor in 1919. Or at the end of the war, um, 5,000 reasons for unconditional surrender. These are German prisoners of war. They, people, photographers and newspapers loved pictures like this. Um, masses and masses of people. Or this pyramid of 12,000 captured German helmets on display outside of Grand Central Terminal in New York in um, May of 1919. Um, This created for the, uh, the victory loan or liberty loan uh, drive of 1919. Or um, these munitions factories. I mean, you, they, they, the, the amount of artillery, I won't even get into that, but the amount of artillery uh, lobbed between the sides during the war was just simply staggering. And this is, a, this is actually a factory in England, uh, but you get the sense of uh, what I'm talking about. Um, or a Zeppelin, the triumph of German engineering, almost 200 meters long. It was, um, it was bigger, than a battle, bigger than a battleship. Um, and the American cemetery, I mean, this is the, 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 the these numbers, these, this, this sense of immensity that I think that most impressed people. Uh, these, this of course is well after the war. These were, these were not put up in 1919. These were put up in the 1920s and 30s these cemeteries, but it gives you a sense of the immensity. 118,000 Americans in uniform died during the war. 65, 66,000 of them died of influenza. So more people, many more people, many more soldiers died of the flu than died of combat wounds. World War I completely transformed Americans' relationship with their government. During the war, and it's just something we, you know, we're kind of used to this today. We have a relationship with our government that is that these people just were not used to yet. The government exercised an unprecedented level of control over the economy. Uncle Sam intervened in labor disputes, nationalized the railroads, took over all American ships and shipping, instituted daylight savings time. They never had done that before. Controlled the supply of gas and oil, instituted price controls for commodities like wheat, and created the War Industries Board, which did everything from administering psychological tests for employment to regulating the supplies of yarn for knitting. Before the war, this now, this is a very important statistic. Before the war, in other words, about 1914, the United States government spent about $900 million on everything it did, not even a billion dollars. But in just 18 months the US, that the U.S. was at war, the government had spent more than 32 billion. So 33 times as much money was spent that they'd, than they'd ever spent before in one year. Um, but one theme 
Moving away from this, one thing that never went away throughout the exhibit's gestation was that of individuals making individual choices and making a difference. And to this end, we nominated 19 witnesses to anchor the sections and help us personify larger, more abstract uh, ideas. Uh, these large-scale images of, of people helped to personalize and personify the period, which is, again, so often seen in terms of mass movements and crowds and undifferentiated crowds of soldiers or victims or protesters. Um, here's Herbert Hoover, who headed up the Committee on Relief in Belgium and virtually created the modern humanitarian movement. Or um, we turn to people like plucky, fearless Alice O'Brien of St. Paul, Minnesota, volunteer mechanic, truck driver, canteen worker, nurse, working near the front, Alice, born to comfort and privilege, but nevertheless, she persisted in her drive to contribute to the war effort. Or Harry Houdini, already 40-something and world famous by the time of, his, of the war, although we'd have his draft registration card, re registered as Harry Handcuff Houdini. Uh, <laughs> um, no parenthesis, just Harry Handcuff Houdini but who came to epitomize so many themes of the era, an immigrant and a Jew breaking out of his chains, escaping danger, surviving, becoming a new man over and over again. An exhibit about America and the war also needs to make room for this passionate and dangerous responses of an Emma Goldman on the right, um, or Eugene V. Debs, the socialist um, candidate for president on the left who is jailed under the terms of the Espionage Act in 1917, and uh, his, his, court, his case goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and he loses. He goes back to jail, where he runs again for president from jail in 1920. Um, we also uh, we, we look at the African-American migration. Again, mass movements of people from the South to the North to, um, to work in northern factories, pushed out of the South by, by racial violence, lynching, poverty oppression pulled to the north by jobs in American industry. And the woman suffrage movement, which gets its final push over the top impetus by the war. It becomes a war measure in Congress. They decide that it's really a war measure to give women the right to vote. Um, this is fabulous poster from 1913. A woman actually dressed like that and rode a horse down the um, mall in Washington, 1913. Um, here are the women, the silent sentinels. You'll see them in the exhibit. Mr. President, how long must we women wait for liberty? What would you do for woman suffrage? Um, and then the, um, at the end of the, towards the end of the exhibit, we, we, we look at 1919, at the year after the war. This is not just an exhibit about World War I, but an exhibit about the impact of the war in the year, especially the years afterwards. So the, um, a, um, a triumphal arch that we copied here and put in the exhibit, Billy Sunday is standing in for our prohibition. Um, the, uh, the abrupt and though welcome, of course, end of the war in 1918 led to the wrenching and often violent transitions in the American economy. No longer in uniform, millions of young men were eager to return to get back to jobs. With a sharp drop in government orders, factories needed fewer workers. And in one year, just one year alone, 1919, the country was convulsed by 4,000 strikes. Think about that. How many per week is that? 
involving nearly four million workers, about one in five members of the entire workforce in the United States was on, went on strike at some point in that one year. Business and government officials cooperated to suppress many of these strikes, often calling on National Guardsmen just back from the war, some of them still wearing their uniforms, some of them manning machine guns that they had manned in France. Now they're training machine guns on strikers and dissidents. Um, labor organizers and strikers, many of them recent immigrants, were condemned, vilified, really, as socialists and radicals, playing on public fears of Bolsheviks and violent anarchists. Um, there were more than, and then another legacy of the war is um, the treatment of disabled veterans. There were more than 300,000 documented cases of American soldiers in World War I who returned home with disabilities. Men who had, quote, paid with their bodies, as Theodore Roosevelt wrote in 1918. Uh, many of them had suffered from blindness and amputations, but the most common problems by far were the less visible disabilities of uh, what they called gas-induced tuberculosis. It wasn't really tuberculosis, caused by poison gas and mental impairments, sometimes called shell shock. Um, also, prohibition gets pushed over the top as an amendment in, the, in 1919 by the war. Will you back me, a doughboy, or will you back booze? Vote yes for prohibition. And they did. And here's, again, so sort of massive. This is Billy Sunday's. Uh, Billy Sunday was the great evangelist, evangelical preacher who preached against the, the evils of alcohol and attracted, look at the size of this thing, 90, 98,000 attendees in New York City. I don't know how they managed to find a space in New York to build something that big. They would build these special tabernacles and Billy would preach to them. No microphones, just Billy's really loud voice. Um, Anna Wessel Williams, a microbiologist and pathologist who helped discover the virus responsible for influenza. She's one of our witnesses. Um, well, finally, um, we knew we couldn't do everything, but we wanted to convey some of the compression, the intensity, the repeated body blows of the war, the millions of people on the move, the rallies and parades and demonstrations with tens of thousands of people, the protests at the very gates of the White House, the stupendous waterfalls of cash, the stunning overdrive of the economy and the job creation, the equally stunning crash into joblessness, strikes and violence of 1919, the racism, the attacks on immigrants and hyphenated Americans, the lynchings, the riots, the bombings, the 300,000 disabled doughboys, the hundreds of thousands of healthy young men and women struck dead by influenza. All of this happened in just those few short years. And I think you would be very hard pressed to find another period in American history when the earth shook as frequently and violently as it did from 1914 to 1919. And this was not happening to the country, but to individuals, to real people. I sometimes get the feeling that millions of Americans woke up one day in 1919 and said, what just happened? My life has changed, my country has changed, my world has changed. There's a quote that I found in the Atlantic magazine that we used in our proposals, but somehow it didn't make it into the exhibit, so I'll share it with you now, and I'll, then I'll close. It's from journalist and radical John Reed, writing in 1917 uh, as he was turning 30. 
and he found himself caught up in the revolutionary fervor um, of the World War I, uh, the revolutionary fervor across America and across the world. Certainly the Great War has done something to us all, but it's also the beginning of a new phase of life, and the world we live in is so full of swift change and color and meaning that I could hardly keep from imagining all of the splendid and terrible possibilities of the time to come. We're living in that time that came, and that's what you'll see when you go upstairs to the exhibit. Thank you all for coming. And so, I know, so I know that some of you have timed tickets to go see the exhibition, but those of you who have questions and would like to stay, Brian said he's willing to take a few questions, and few of us are here with microphones. We can come to you. Any, any questions? I'd be happy to answer questions. Or I can meet you upstairs in the gallery. I'll be up there and we can talk if you'd like. Thanks yes. a lot for your interesting uh, conversation there. Thank and you. And my question is, did uh, Wilson have that much charisma that he could <laughs> convince all of these people to fall in behind him? And could you explain the term doughboy? We'll start with Doughboy. It's explained in the exhibit upstairs as a little oh, paragraph, okay. but I'll tell you quickly, it, it probably, it, there's some different differences of opinion about it. It may come from the term adobe. In the, uh, the 19th century, soldiers on the, in the Mexican War in the 1840s, 1850s, went down in the, uh, in, in the, in the south, in the Mexican War, um, and got dust all over their, adobe dust all over their clothes, and they, and they, um, they, they came back and, and they were called dobies or adobies uh, as a nickname. And that sort of tra eventually migrated into doughboys. If you believe that, that's OK. Um, <laughs> Wilson, I think, you know, charisma is the wrong word. I mean, I don't think he had much in the way of like John F. Kennedy charisma um, or Barack Obama type charisma, charm, charisma. Um, Eloquent. He was eloquent, but people respected him for his intellect. Here was the, one of the, here's a trivia question for you. How many, how many U.S. presidents have the Ph.D.? Two. One of them is um, Woodrow Wilson, and I'll let you figure out who the other one is. Um, yeah, I mean, he was, he was a president of Princeton University. He was the governor of New Jersey. He was a man who not only read books, he wrote books. <laughs> he was brilliant uh, and persuasive. Uh, people respected uh, a man's mind in those days as president. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yes, any other questions? Am I going to be right? Yes, right in the middle there. Uh, Jimmy Carter is the other PhD in uh, nuclear engineering, I believe, because he, uh, he was the captain of a nuclear submarine. Uh, I haven't been able to see the whole exhibit, but uh, I grew up in South Dakota, and my grandfather built the house in which I grew up. And since we were German, mm. uh, several times yellow, yellow paint was slopped on the house. <laughs> and I, 
I don't know if you dealt with how Germans were treated during the war in the exhibit. I haven't seen it, as I said. I, I apologize. It. It's hardly mentioned at all. It's one of those things that's down there with the elephant and the horse and everything else that didn't that got excluded. Um, at one point, we were going to have uh, a, um, an effigy of the Kaiser. People actually in South Dakota, I believe, and especially in the upper Midwest, which there was a lot of opposition to the war. In Minnesota, where there's a very large German population, in the upper Midwest, South Dakota, North Dakota, Wisconsin, a lot of opposition to the war. Uh, and um, but then and then then the backlash, of course, a lot of opposition to the to the opposition and attacking German Americans as hyphenated Americans. Um, we have a little card in from Minnesota the, um, that required aliens to register as aliens, and it says, you know, are you a citizen? If not, why not? On the questionnaire, why don't you want to become a citizen? They, people were very suspicious of immigrants. No, I'm sorry, we didn't get much into that in the exhibit. But uh, we wanted to, I wanted to reproduce one of the effigies of the Kaiser that people hung uh, and you know, um, threw paint at the effigies. But I got overruled on that, too. But yes, we talked about that today, earlier today. Beethoven's music was banned for a while. German food was renamed. You know, sauerkraut became something else. You know, victory cabbage, I think. Um, um, German, there's, there's photographs of German textbooks, uh, school books being piled up and burned, just like you know the Nazis did later. Uh, so yeah, it was pretty shocking, and not funny. I mean, people make use this for you know, like I said, the sauerkraut, that 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 it was a kind of amusing thing. Well, imagine if you were German in 1917 in America, it wasn't funny at all. I mean, you were you were the subject of 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 sometimes some violent oppression. Yeah. Yes, sir. Anybody else? Yes, one question here. Are there quite a few um, Doughboy monuments across the country? Yes. Um, there is one in the exhibit that we reproduced. It's the called, what's it called? The Victorist, something Doughboy, the American Doughboy. The, um, those were the most prominent, most popular. There were 300 of these exact copies of this Doughboy monument. Um, it's a sort of a victorious Doughboy going like this. And you could buy one off the shelf uh, if you were like a small town in somewhere and you wanted your own World War I memorial. But there, is, there are several thousand, um, I, thousands of memorials after the war. It's one of these things that people kind of forget that we didn't forget. The war was not forgotten immediately, not by, not by a long shot. People were so proud of American uh, uh, victory in the war. They documented it carefully. They made memorials. They, one of the interesting things about World War I memorials is that they're often not just you know, heroic monuments of men, but they made um, useful civic structures and named them memorial. So memorial stadiums. If you see a memorial stadium of a certain age in the United States, you can bet that it's about World War I. The one in Minnesota was Michigan, Nebraska. All these football stadiums that were built on campuses were memorial stadiums. The War Memorial Opera House in uh, San Francisco is a World War I memorial. Memorial Bridge in, um, no, I take that back, in Washington. No, that's really about the Civil War. But um, yeah, different war. Yes, a lot. And you can go online and look. There's a, there's a guy, of course, who is 
So there's a guy doing everything. <laughs> so there's a guy for everything. Uh, and there's a guy doing in inventory of World War I memorials um, as a website. Yes, in the back. Correct. Yeah, more than that. Uh, four million men. Oh, he, the marshaling of human resources, to creating a, an army just like that, it seemed. There were like 34,000 men in the American army in 1917. Um, you know, within months, they had recruited again, and drafted, um, I think the, ult the final figure of US men in military in the war was something like uh, 4.2 million, of which the vast majority, like 90%, were in the Army. And most of them were drafted. Uh, there was a Navy, there was a Coast Guard, there, was, there were Marines, of course, Marines famously, uh, the first American engagement in the war, first serious engagement is by the Marines at Bellow Wood, but, but it's mostly the Army. Uh, yes, massive creation of the as Army almost instantaneously, and then training them, getting them fed and clothed and uniformed, and then getting them onto boats, and then, I mean, think of the logistics, unbelievable. Yes, sir. the last two days of the war. Mm. Uh, and there is a monument to World War I veterans in Bird Park, and it's been an ongoing battle with the city of Richmond to keep the flagpole up and painted, and a flag on top of that pole. Mm. So if anybody goes to Bird Park, it's right near the Christopher Columbus uh, monument. The other thing, per my father, who was three years younger, his brother was 20 years old. He was drafted in August, had two weeks of training, hmm. and put on his ship to France. Yeah. That was his total training to go to war. Uh, so when people say they got a lot of training per my father, his brother did not. They were desperate towards the end. They were throwing men at that war. Uh, I think I, I told people earlier that they uh, September and October of 1918, probably I'm going to nominate them as the two worst months in American history because those are the two worst months of the, uh, the influenza epidemic in this country and the two worst months for combat deaths of Americans in Europe. Unbelievable, this compression. You know, we're in the war from April 1917, but we don't get anybody over there until well into the summer and even in the fall of 17. So most of the fighting of Americans is done in 1918, and most of that is done really towards the end. And it was horrible. The compression of the killing, the, num the scale of the killing in just those two months was unbelievable. And as you said, there were people killed right up to the last minute, November 11th, 1918. Yes, sir. One more comment. The War Department couldn't notify parents that, of killings, killings right away. So when my father died, I found a letter from my grandmother to her son, who had been killed, but she didn't know it, telling about the celebration in Richmond, he was coming home, and in that package my father had was 
return to sender the letter that Bob. Oh, yeah. And then a letter from the War Department saying, regret to tell yeah. you your son was killed. It, you know, there was no communication. In was he buried there? He was buried in France, and my grandparents had him brought back mm -hmm. in the 20s, and he's now buried at Riverview. You, had, you, you, you were given the option to go leave your, your family member's body in France in one of those graves with the crosses on top, or you, the government would pay for you to go over there and uh, exhume the body and bring it back and bury it in this country. But yeah. So we have time for one more question okay. right here. Were many of the uh, captured German uh, soldiers desire to stay in this country and not return to Germany? That's a really good question. I never heard that before. Uh, you, you probably know more about it. You sound like you might know more about it than I do. So ger you, German prisoners of war brought to this country? World War I prisoners? I knew World War II prisoners of war were brought here, but World War I prisoners too? I don't know. You, you may be right. And then elected to stay here, because there were lots of German-speaking communities in the United States, of course. But Yeah. Yeah, and there, there was... Wow. Wow. Well, thank you. Thanks again for coming. I really appreciate it.